Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin, Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. It is a production of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia, and the Sea Power Centre Australia. In the last episode, we talked about how Navy's health services had developed from their colonial predecessors up until the end of World War II. In this episode, we'll talk about how Navy's health services have developed since World War II. Once again, I'm joined by Commodore Mike Dowsett, who served as a permanent Navy dental officer for over 30 years and as Director General Navy Health Services before retiring in 1997. Mike has written extensively about the early history of the RAN Health Services. We're also joined again by Commander Neil Westphalen, who served as a permanent Navy Medical Officer for 29 years before transferring to the Reserve in 2016. He has also written extensively on the Navy Health Services. Welcome back. Mike, what were the challenges for the Navy's health services in this period immediately following the Second World War? Well, I think immediately following, uh, the Navy as a whole uh, reverted back to its reliance for guidance from the Royal Navy. And this was reflected in health services as well. An example, uh, the decision to purchase two aircraft carriers from Britain saw the need to have our own expertise in aviation medicine. The creation of a diving branch needed our capability in underwater medicine. We built ships based on British designs and they included pre-wetting systems to cope with potential nuclear fallout. And so health staff had to be abreast of all those advances in military medicine. The Korean War, I think it was our first test following World War II, but again, we were part of a larger British force and supported medically by British military hospitals in Hong Kong and Singapore. The next major change was the involvement in the nuclear tests in the Montebello Islands. Fortunately, we had a medical officer who had been recently recruited from the UK, Commander Jim Lloyd, later became a Rear Admiral, but he developed, mainly as a result of his own interest, expertise in nuclear um, medicine, the medical aspects of nuclear warfare. And uh, he really pioneered that. Operational support from away from our shores was another factor where we started to become a bit independent. And that involved uh, establishing a base at Manus Island on a smaller scale in the 50s. But by 1974, the Navy had a 32-bed general ward hospital operating theatre uh, and medical dental nursing staff to support a small naval uh, involvement, but also the local community. Vietnam War was another area where we were primarily supported by the United States Navy. Uh, and so we didn't need our own military expertise and backup to support that engagement. 
things changed a bit with when there were British forces were withdrawn from east of Suez in 1971, and that meant a, a naval involvement uh, far away from our shores in Singapore, part of a tri-service, tri-national force, ANZAC force, and uh, we contributed a small share of medical officers, dental officers, and nursing officers and sailors until that Australian withdrawal in 1974. Interspersed, of course, in all that were the, the, the tragedies of the Melbourne Voyager collision and later the Melbourne L. Evans collision, which all had medical input. Navy's response to Cyclone Tracy, the gassing incident aboard HMAS Storwit in 1996 and the West Australia fire. And also the response to the tsunami um, in Aceh with the tragic loss of a Sea King. Hello. So, Neil, Mike has talked about the development of some new types of naval medicine, aviation, diving, etc. Can you talk about the development of the Navy's aviation medicine capability? Well, uh, thanks, Rob. Well, uh, the institution of the uh, Fleet Air Arm in uh, 1948 uh, led to uh, the development of a aviation medicine facility uh, next to the sick quarters at Albatross, which was similar but on a much smaller scale to what the Air Force had down at Port Co Point Cook. Uh, we used it to provide training to the aviators on the physiological hazards associated with, fly with flying. Um, this, was, uh, this capability was um, introduced by the then commander, uh, later Rear Admiral, Robert Mumbles Copelands, uh, who was another RN import. Um, the facility closed with the cessation of fixed-wing aviation in the mid-80s um, and there was a bit of a hiatus for about 10 years until uh, selected Navy medical officers began um, civilian diploma-level education in aviation medicine at Farmer in the UK, which continues to this day. It, this restored a pool of aviation medicine expertise, not only to support Navy aircrew on the clinical side, and um, co uh, command a fleet air arm on the policy side, but it also helps make uh, ADF aviation medicine truly joint. In fact, uh, butting in there, Neil, there are two naval medical officers actually completed full pilot training. That's right. Uh, one, uh, of, one of whom was um, later Com Commodore uh, Michael Flynn. Um, but it, uh, the, the, which is good from, from a aviation support capability, but it's also important with respect to maritime rotary wing aeromedical evacuation, which has become even more important in recent years with the LHDs. Mike, talk about the underwater medicine capability. Yeah, I think the Navy's involvement in underwater medicine is largely unsung and unknown. But uh, when the Navy formed a clearance diving branch in 1951, again, it was Royal Navy practice we followed, not only in equipment, but also in the, the medical examination of potential divers. But in Australia, at least one diver every fortnight in the 1950s lost consciousness during diving without any understanding as to why. And most of those cases were not reported. The then DG, Admiral Lionel Lockwood, convinced a reserve specialist and anaesthetist, Rex Gray, to transfer to full-time service and to specialise in underwater medicine. In fact, in 1963, in the very first day of his posting to the uh, diving school at Rushcutter, 
a compressed air diver undergoing free ascent training suffered an air embolism. Gray entered the recompression chamber with him but was unable to revive him. Later, two CDs failed to surface during a night dive in Jervis Bay. In that time, REN divers on oxygen breathing sets lost consciousness at the rate of about one per week, with the diver being resuscitated pretty quickly and the incident unreported. However, experiments at the newly established School of Underwater Medicine using divers as test subjects disclosed that the problem was a flaw in the carbon dioxide absorbance system in the sets that were in use. And that research allowed the fledgling School of Underwater Medicine to gain international expertise in the understanding of oxygen syncope. The school later moved to Penguin where it developed an international reputation not only in the treatment of decompression sickness but an authority on dangerous marine animals and it became the Australian reference centre for civilian divers who uh, got the bends not only in Australian waters but in the southwest Pacific. And from 1968, regional navies began sending their medical officers to Penguin for training. However, in the 70s, the support from Navy office seemed to wane, budgetary support declined, and with that, uh, a gap developed. The gap, and in that capability, is recognised in 1982, and to regain expertise, we obtained the services of two medical officers from the Royal Navy, uh, one of which uh, had experience in submarine escape techniques. And uh, from then on, uh, we developed expertise in mixed gas capability, uh, which was again recognised uh, in, in the region. Neil, we've talked about the aviation, we've talked about uh, the diving branch, now something quite close to my heart. How about the submarine branch and its nest? Well, uh, I guess the scope of um, the School of Underwater Medicine expanded uh, tremendously with the introduction of the Oberon class submarines from the late 1960s because um, we had to do two things. One was to look at medical suitability for submarine service uh, and we also had to develop a submarine escape and rescue capability. Um, once again, uh, we relied on the RN providing an exchange officer at the submarine base at Platypus in Sydney until the mid-90s. Um, the focus was predominantly more on um, rescue, on escape rather than rescue until, uh, uh, but it, it expanded a lot when we, uh, when we opened the submarine escape training facility at Stirling in the 1980s. Uh, which is um, one of only seven worldwide and the only one in the seven uh, southern hemisphere when it was opened. Uh, we continue to conduct exercise Black Carillion every year to maintain our uh, submarine escape and rescue capability, which has a clearly a very major uh, medical input. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we had our first uh, medic submariners going to sea in uh, 1999 uh, and uh, the reason we did that was to reduce the need to uh, for the submarines to land people ashore when they were doing operational things. Mike, in the last episode we talked about the development of an RAN nursing service in the Second World War. How did that service fare after the Second World War? Well in 1948 it was decided to disband uh, 
the uniform nursing service, although a small pool of civilians still remained, uh, until 1964 and a shortage of medical sailors led to its re-establishment. Uh, and they had two roles, the care of patients in hospital, but importantly, supervising the training of medics, medical sailors uh, to make sure uh, that they had the necessary expertise when they went to sea. The, this one thing to remember though was that uh, the Navy Nursing Service was actually established separately from the Navy in general and separately from the, from the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service. Um, it was uh, amalgamated uh, together with the, the, the RANS in 1985 and that's the point where they became uh, eligible for senior leadership uh, positions within the health services along with their medical, dental and medical admin um, colleagues. Can you describe, Neil, uh, the provision of shore-based health services for Navy personnel? We've talked a little about uh, Manus Island and yep. some, of the other, uh, some of the other establishments. Can you talk a little bit further about, about the shore? Um, yeah, well, we, we had uh, the Navy ward at Prince of Wales Hospital, which had been going since the 1920s. Uh, that moved to Penguin in 1950. Um, these and the Navy hospitals at Cerberus and Albatross were augmented by uh, additional uh, inpatient facilities at Narimba, Lewin and later Stirling. And uh, we had uh, outpatient sick bays at just about every other shore establishment until the 1990s. Uh, the inpatient capability at Penguin uh, was transferred to uh, St Vincent's Hospital in the early 2000s. Um, it was closed in 2013. Um, Albatross received a new facility in 1995 and that replaced a fibro-built building that originated during World War II as the Air Force NCO mess. Um, the interwar and World War II facilities at Service Hospital were replaced in 96. Uh, and uh, it's now home to the ADF Dental School. In fact, you mentioned those replacements of uh, shore facilities and those World War II uh, pretty awful buildings. Uh, I had a bit of involvement in, in uh, making sure that facilities like that were updated uh, and lobbied uh, to particularly improve the facilities at Cerberus, which was open passageways leading to brick and corrugated iron wards. We we got one stage, I think we're number six in the list of Naval Works planning and priorities, but couldn't get past that until Minister Beasley visited Cerberus. And I got a phone call uh, in the afternoon saying uh, that our that this new replacement Cerberus hospital was moved to number one. The result uh, being that Minister Beasley had walked through the, one of these open <laughs> passageways and a, a pigeon strategically uh, uh, above him shat on him. Uh, and uh, I don't know who would trained the pigeon, but it was a great success. It's worth noting that uh, the, the famous submarine photo of um, the of um, Cuttable being sunk alongside uh, Garden Island, there's a white building in the background, which was actually the dental facility for Cuttable, which remained in use until the 1990s. So to wrap up this uh, this little uh, discussion about the Navy's uh, services, what happened around 1997? Well, uh, we had a review in uh, 97, which essentially resulted in the unification of the three uniformed health services. 
Um, as I said, the closure of the, of the operating theatre at Penguin led to a new Navy ward at St Vincent's from 2008 until 2013. A uh, 2008 review re re resulted in a series of service and regional level agreements between the service chiefs and the new uh, commander of uh, Joint Health Command. So uh, health services ashore since then have been a Joint Health Command responsibility which uses a uh, combination of Navy, uh, public servant and uh, contracted civilian uh, health providers. Okay, to change tack a little now from the provision of the services to thinking about things like ship design, Mike, can you talk about medical involvement in ship design and seagoing medical facilities? Yeah, I think in relation to ships built in Australia, I think there was largely little involvement. The early iterations of the British design, the um, uh, Rothsay class frigates, which developed into our river class and the Leanders, we basically followed the Royal Navy and as such we got well-equipped spacious sick bays that were very good for our needs. When we moved to decide to build an Anzac class frigate in Australia, my assumption that there was no involvement. In fact at that time the general principle seemed to be within Navy that once they'd adopted the design that none of the directorates would have any input it because there would be no modifications to. Uh, against that, I remember talking to uh, Admiral Trelaw in the medical directorate and just asked him what were the sick bays of the ANSAC frigates like and he said, oh, I don't know but we're not, in, we're not involved. Uh, however, the project office was the next building and a friend of mine was down there, so I went down and, and asked to have a look at the, the plans for the sick bay of an Anzac ship. And he got the plans out, looked at it, <coughs> looked at it again, there was no sick bay. The reason for that is that uh, we'd adopted a, a Turkish modified uh, design from the original German design, and the Turkish operating scenario, if they had a, a patient or sailor that required medical treatment, uh, or, uh, he'd be landed at the nearest port and they were operating in the Mediterranean, that was no problem. So uh, hastily two cabins uh, were redesignated as a, a sick bay and that's how when the ships arrived they did have a purpose-built sick bay. Can you talk also about the development of the Navy's primary casualty receiving facilities aboard the LPAs? Yeah, that was another project that I had a lot of personal interest in. Uh, I had developed a rough concept paper for uh, what's determined a level three health facility afloat, and that means the ability to conduct uh, uh, operation, um, surgical operations, particularly important to uh, manage those after surgery and manage them in, in numbers. Uh, there'd been a belief, I think, amongst uh, some of my um, seamen officers colleagues that we did have that in Melbourne and Stort, we had an operating theatre, yes we did, but if you did one uh, operation then that was the limit. It had no staff to monitor uh, the post recovery and so a larger level three which was uh, capabilities that's what we got. Um, it, 
I've produced a, a, a staff paper about that. I don't know what happened to it, uh, but it didn't gain much traction. However, in a later uh, appointment to uh, the health directorate, I had a bit more ability to influence things and uh, got a project officer dedicated full-time to develop that concept. And that was Commander Rush Shedlick. And over a year, he produced very detailed requirements uh, based on what he learned from overseas uh, uh, navies as well. And towards the end of the year, when we purchased the two um, surplus landing ships from the United States, renamed them Canimbla and Manura, and in their conversion, we incorporated uh, that level three capability. And Neil, can you talk about how those facilities in the LSTs uh, were used? Well, uh, they're both used for exercise casualties and for real patients uh, for several exercises, uh, in particular the Talisman Sabre series. Um, I led the medical team for Talisman Sabre 2007, and uh, well, the most striking thing I got was how the uh, PCFs could actually be used to not land people ashore. Uh, it was very nice to sort of go to be told, oh, we can actually keep this one on board, and I go, okay, we'll, we'll keep going, which is great. Um, so the, uh, they're also used to provide medical support for various uh, operational taskings in the Southwest Pacific and East Timor. Uh, and uh, Canimbra also participated in the 2003 Gulf War. I think the main highlight, though, was when Canimbra supported the uh, humanitarian aid response to the 2004 Indonesian uh, earthquake and tsunami. She uh, deployed at very short notice over the Christmas leave period with a medical team uh, that was uh, intended to support the army, engineer and other elements ashore, while also treating local civilians depending on spare capacity. Uh, she completed Sumatra Assist 1. Uh, she was in Singapore on her way home uh, when she was redeployed to Sumatra Assist 2 after another earthquake hit near Nias Island. Uh, during which uh, we lost nine people killed, including five Navy and Air Force medics in the uh, crash of uh, Shark 02. Moving on from that very sad note, Neil, can you talk a little bit about the non-high-end LPA level of health services and support to maritime operations? And in particular, can you describe why and how the Navy came up with the idea of clinical managers for major fleet units? Oh, thanks, Rob. The clinical managers, just to explain, are the, the senior medical sailors uh, that uh, run the ship's uh, medical departments when there's no MO embarked uh, on the major fleet units. The reason we did it was that um, up until then we'd used uh, medical officers on all of our ships, um, but the end of the Vietnam War in 1972 led to a very difficult uh, recruiting problem, which meant we couldn't do that anymore. So... Um, Nursing Officer, Lieutenant Commander Sheena McDougall, Medical Admin Officer, Lieutenant Commander Phil Davies, who had had lots of sea time uh, as a sailor, assisted by the then Medical Officers in charge, Jeff Bayless, followed by Kerry Delaney at Cerberus, uh, developed um, the Advanced Clinical Course, or ACC, in 1981. At the time, nothing like this course existed in Australia or elsewhere. Uh, it's very much a proto paramedic course. Um, its, its benefits quickly became apparent when uh, a sailor fell across a hatchway and ruptured his urethra. It took him three days to be landed ashore. Um, 
while uh, commanding officer with uh, a myocardial infarction uh, likewise dem demonstrated the ACC's benefits in teaching very junior medical sailors how to take charge of uh, such patients. The course was renamed the Phase 4 uh, course in the mid-90s and became the current clinical manager's course in the early to mid-2000s. So thinking about some of the other maritime operations we've been involved with, Mike, can you talk a little bit about what happened uh, during and after the 1990-1991 uh, Gulf War? Yeah, there are a number of challenges that the RAN was faced with the, with the Gulf War, uh, and particularly the possibility of having casualties from chemical and biological weapons that we knew Iraq had uh, did possess. In fact, they'd used them on their own people. Um, so with the sudden commitment of uh, Australian naval forces to the Gulf, how we go we able to cope with this threat. Um, I'm not quite sure who within Navy had made a decision some years before to develop that capability where there is medical expertise in the treatment of um, chemical and biological weapons. Uh, I don't think that capability was really appreciated at the higher levels and I can uh, expand on that when uh, I was at a CNS heads of divisions meeting uh, and I was trying to think of something uh, of interest to say and, and as it turned to me uh, as the last uh, uh, speaker the then CNS asked what's happening in the health world and and, uh, and I said well Captain Delaney has just recently come back from the United States doing refresher training in chemical and biological warfare. And I thought that would get a few uh, tick in the box, but instead I was quite shocked when uh, uh, Admiral Hudson picked up a, a large pile of papers in his desk, threw them on the floor and said, why are we bothering with this? We're never going to have any need uh, in, in our Navy to have such expertise. Well, within, uh, within eight months, uh, his successor, was uh, being advised about uh, what precautions uh, his sailors should take uh, in that uh, theatre of operations in the Gulf. So even chiefs of naval staff, CNSs are not uh, prescient as to all of the health, uh, all of the health threats we're going to face. Um, Mike, were those weapons used? As it happened, there's no evidence that they were used either on land uh, or at sea. Uh, there were sightings of, of silkworm missiles overflying some ships in the Gulf. Whether they were weaponised or not, no one knew. But it was still a threat, it was a real threat, and sailors uh, were concerned that uh, they may be hit by weapons such as these. Were any uh, Navy Health Services personnel uh, involved in the UN Special Commission that followed after that war dealing with uh, these stockpiles? Yeah, once it was recognised that Australia and particularly that the Navy had that expertise in the uh, medical uh, aspects of uh, chemical and biological weapons, uh, we contributed to identification teams under the auspices uh, of the United Nations Special Commission and 
the first team with uh, Commander John Parks and Chief Dale Dilger uh, uh, were part of a team that uh, went in in 1961. Uh, later, 1991. Commander Andy Robertson, with similar training experience, was deployed to Baghdad as chief inspector of an UNSCOM team. And in 1997, he represented Australia at a meeting in the UN, which concluded that there is then no complete record of Iraq's biological warfare production. Certainly, weaponised. Uh, uh, systems had been found and destroyed. And Mike, just to wrap up talking about the 1991 Gulf War, were there any other health support issues or challenges uh, during that conflict? The big one was the uh, attachment of ADF uh, health teams, uh, initially uh, predominantly Navy, but later combined with the three services that contributed to the United States Naval Hospital Ship Comfort. Um, the United States had 2,000 bed hospital ships that went to the Gulf. Uh, Mercy was kept in reserve in, in uh, Bahrain, but Comfort was uh, offshore, in fact, uh, headed right up into the Gulf when the uh, initial land invasion um, commenced. It was an interesting exercise because Navy was very keen to make sure that we had an arrangement whereby if we did suffer casualties that they could be um, managed by sophisticated health system uh, and we didn't have that in theatre. Um, so by making a contribution to the United States Navy, it ensured that we had access to their evacuation chain. Uh, there were some challenges in that. Uh, that the United States Navy was a bit wary of having uh, non-US people with health qualifications that they may not have recognised and they'd gone through some recent experiences in, in their hospital in Bethesda which had deficiencies there. So the initial idea was that we could have an Australian team on board but would only treat Australian casualties. In the end, um, sense prevailed once in theatre and uh, the expertise that we did provide to the, uh, the comfort w was acknowledged uh, and we provided unique expertise that they didn't have. What sorts of expertise were they, for example? Well, one small uh, but uh, vital expertise, we'd, we had a nursing officer in the Navy who had recent experience in the management of burns. And when the um, USS Iwo Jima suffered a boiler explosion with some sailors seriously burnt. Within the large USN hospital ship, they had no staff with recent management of burns. And so we were able to provide that. Unfortunately, those sailors didn't survive, but they were nursed for four or five days uh, with, with up-to-date nursing treatment. Neil, can you describe what's happened with Navy seagoing surgical capabilities since the 1991 Gulf War? Well, I think probably the, the main one basically relates to the transition from the, uh, the um, primary casualty receiving facilities aboard the LHD, sorry, the LPAs to those aboard the LHDs, because the 
LHD's had such a, a vastly expanded capability. Um, there were some major challenges uh, keeping it going in terms of people during the hiatus between uh, the uh, LPAs paying off and the LHDs entering service, um, trying to keep them properly and working out how to staff them and also their store support. Um, the staffing situation led to probably the, the other major change. Um, for most of the LPA period, the staffing for when their PCRFs were activated was, um, we did have a group of people, but it was a bit sort of ad hoc. Um, and one of the things we had to do was stand up a dedicated maritime operational health unit from 2014 uh, in order to best capitalise on what the LH can do, LHDs can do when their PCRFs are activated. So could you just talk a little bit about what the LHDs do and why they have a PCRF? Well, what is an LHD? Okay, well, the, the landing helicopter docks are the, the big shoebox-looking um, ships that uh, came into service from uh, 2015. Um, they're uh, amphibious warfare vessels, um, and um, uh, they have a crew of about 400, but they also carry up to 1,000 um, embarked force personnel, which are generally usually army. Uh, amphibious operations are important in terms of health support because... Um, it's all got to be done from the ship until the army can get itself sorted ashore. Um, and to that end, uh, we have a facility with uh, two operating theatres um, and a six-bed um, resource area uh, and a, uh, an eight-bed um, high-dependency unit um, and, uh, and, and wards for up to 50, pe uh, beds for up to uh, 50 people. So uh, along with all the... Uh, um, laboratory, x-ray and other facilities need to keep all that running. So I assume that Canberra and Adelaide, our LHDs, therefore need quite an enhanced medical complement in order to um, manage this size of PCRF. Um, certainly, uh, it's, it's more of a skills thing because you needed, uh, you'd need uh, laboratory people, you need x-ray people, um, and uh, but the the biggest numbers are changes to the numbers I guess relates to people to things like intensive care, and uh, and general ward sort of staffing there. There's also need to acknowledge the extent to which the PSRFs need support from the rest of the ship with respect to things like moving casualties around, mm -hmm. bed linen, laundry, sort of dumb things, you know, dumb things like that, but are really still essential. Absolutely. They're dumb, but they're essential. Absolutely. You can't function without. Well, before we wrap up, I'd just like to ask a, a question about a very niche capability that Navy Health uh, has, and that's to talk a little bit about forensics. Now, the reason I ask this is I was involved in the Commission of Inquiry into HMAS Sydney 2, and uh, it's sinking after, after, its, um, after its engagement with Cormoran. And one of the issues we looked at was the presence on Christmas Island of a single sailor who had washed up in a life raft who was uh, buried on Christmas Island. And Navy played a role in, uh, a forensic role, in trying to identify that sailor. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, well, that's, the ADF had expertise in identification using dental records for some time, mainly a group captain in the Air Force Reserve. Uh, his role was taken over by Captain Matt Blenken that uh, did a further study in that. And uh, it's a capability that goes beyond just dental uh, 
aspects, its DNA evidence, and uh, his expertise, along with a, a few others, uh, also used in the civilian sense, where they've been seconded to agencies such as after the Victorian bushfires uh, and uh, the tsunami in Aceh, uh, a particular expertise that's very good to have in a, a military population because of the need to identify military casualties. Well, that then brings us to the penultimate question, and that is, what does it all mean now? Except I might just butt Please in do. for a minute because there's one aspect that I think is I'd forgotten about is important, and that's our relationship with uh, foreign navies. Indeed. And one in particular was our relationship with the Indonesian Navy. Now, um, in 1966, there was an approach from the Indonesian Navy um, for an exchange or share of ideas when in dental treatment, and that seemed a bit strange. They had a very sophisticated uh, postgraduate dental school in Jakarta, uh, and uh, they wanted to establish a link. And it was explained to me that it was sort of like soft diplomacy. They didn't want to involve an engagement of the RAN in warlike activities, but uh, uh, sort of a soft health capability. It was helped by the then president, a personal friend, was a Navy dental officer. So that probably facilitated that. And that continued for a few years and of course then uh, we had East Timor, um, but when I was DG Navy in, in, in the 90s, um, I remember being summoned by Admiral McDougall and he said he'd just come back from the Indonesian ambassador and he, out of the blue was a request that we establish health links with the Western Fleet. So a week later I was in Surabaya and that whole relationship was extended and again it was explained to me that it was again a little avenue into developing relations but it was not at the sort of high-end capability. Yeah. And I assume, I guess, uh, Neil I'll ask you this, I assume we also have similar sorts of relations with other naval medical and dental services around the world, even Five Eyes etc. that we operate with? Uh, not as perhaps not as much as um, we uh, we used to. Um, the, the we have a, an exchange program for our uh, medical admin offices with the U.S. Um, and uh, we also have uh, uh, aviation medicine training um, with uh, the U.K. as we mentioned uh, previously. Probably the biggest one, as far as this stuff's concerned, relates to. Um, the uh, submarine escape and rescue capabilities, which is actually quite a big uh, deal. We've had uh, a couple of um, Black Caribbeans have actually had quite a lot of international engagement. Yeah, I'd add to that, little known, but uh, there are periods in recent years where we contributed to UN missions uh, as part of an ADF contribution. And uh, I'm sure that a young dental undergraduate when he was recruited into the Navy would never have imagined that he would end up as a dental officer in the middle of uh, Africa as part of an ADF contribution to Rwanda, probably the furthest away from the seaboard you could ever get. 
there's actually been quite a few of those uh, sort of tri-service engagements which have involved uh, Navy health personnel. Well, Neil, Mike, any further thoughts, final thoughts to wrap up this podcast? Yeah, I think uh, we talked about challenges faced uh, over the last hundred years. And as I explained earlier that some of those challenges are just as relevant in today's sophisticated Navy, uh, where we have uh, ships operating away from Australia in, in peacetime. Uh, and that ship, as you know, is a, could be an airfield with fuel dump, aviation fuel, uh, diesel fuel, armament stores, all in a potential situation uh, where a medical emergency can happen. And you can't just rely on nearby civilian uh, facilities because and even in the Southwest Pacific, those facilities don't exist and they may be days away from where that ship is. Neil? I think Mike's uh, raised some good points to that one. I guess the one from me is, it, well, there's two lessons. One is how uh, Navy's health service functions and roles had to expand after World War II in particular to accommodate Navy's um, operational capabilities that came up, uh, in particular things like aviation, diving, submarine, medicine, and um, CBRN uh, defence, uh, particularly because these are all very uh, military specific. There's not a lot of demand for any of those those capabilities in the civilian community, and what there is usually doesn't quite meet what we need. Um, I think the same also applies to uh, Navy seagoing surgical capability, noting that it's not just for treating um, bullet-riddled, bleeding battle casualties, but also supporting uh, maritime humanitarian aid uh, operations. Um, I think the other challenges that Mike refers to refer, it pertains to, the, to how, how to keep this expertise going uh, despite the small size of, of our health services, uh, particularly noting that um, borrowing expertise from bigger navies uh, generally isn't um, um, a realistic option. And I think the increasing degree of specialisation of uh, civilians, there's something like 80 specialisations in Australia, but spread between 100,000 doctors uh, nationwide, and uh, trying to uh, um, spread that or have that expert as much of that expertise as we need uh, in-house is, is the challenges that we have now and will continue to have into the future. Well that's all we have time for and Mike, Neil it's been a great pleasure to have you join us today to share your expertise and your experience and your scholarship on the Naval Health Service. Our next podcast is on the Melbourne Voyager Collision and we look forward to you joining us then. Thank you.